The following podcast contains spoilers and words like crap, and fuck. Mate, did we watch a thing this week? Yeah, we did. Welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to have you with us here at We Watched a Thing. Uh, as usual, I'm Topher. And I'm here with Billy. Hey, how you doing, buddy? Mate, couldn't be better. Really, you couldn't be better. In your in your 30 odd years, you've never been better. That's a lie. <laughs> I figured as much. <laughs> what have you been up to, buddy? Uh, working, watching things. Yeah, you watched anything good? I sure have. Ever since we did our Taxi Drive episode about hankering to watch Goodfellas, which I did over the weekend, oh. um, it was predictably very good. I need to rewatch that too. It's been a long time. I've been um, powering through. Here we are on the, what is it, the 12th, 11th of Jan or something, and I'm 14 movies down, my friend. You're going at a good clip there, mate. Yeah, well, I was sick last week, which helped, but um, now I'm back at work, so I suspect that number to to drop very, very steadily. <laughs> Will it, or are you just going to watch things at your desk? Maybe. I did today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, colleagues, no. I was working very, very hard. <laughs> I have your boss's phone number. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along. What are we talking about this week, my friend? Sam Mendes has a new film out. It's called 1917. It's set in April of 1917. That's true. April 6th, if memory serves, from what the message at the start said. So that's what we're going to talk about because we both watched it. (laughs) All right. 1917 is a 2019 epic war film directed, co-written and produced by Sam Mendes. It stars George McKay, Dean Charles Chapman, Mark Strong, Andrew Scott, Richard Madden, Claire DeBert, Colin Firth and surprise appearance by Benedict Cumberbatch. We haven't actually spoken about the Globes at all in any capacity because we don't really care. Uh, But you're aware that Mendes won director for this? I was aware that he won and the film won. You didn't seem to have high hopes last time we spoke about this film. You were expecting to kind of enjoy Deacon's cinematography and that to be it. How do you feel post-film? Look, I thought look, I thought it would be good, but I wasn't expecting to be wowed by it beyond what I was expecting would be a pretty serious technical achievement. Mm-hmm. I'd say my expectations were met. This is a really tough one for me because I kind of, I kind of agree with you, but at the same time I don't. I don't know. So let, let's get straight into it then. <laughs> All right. So we start. You know, it's, it's World War One. It's trench warfare was the new black, uh, and that's where <laughs> that's where we start our film doing a, you know, doing a Kubrick Paths of Glory thing. And I was like, I don't like. I don't know how else you would film scenes in the trenches, but but on the other hand, like I think everyone since. Has just been like, well, you're just doing Kubrick. And they're like, well, what the fuck else are we going to do? I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm not saying I have other ideas. I'm just saying <laughs> you're doing Kubrick. <laughs> but look, it's good. It's very good. I think the strongest part of the film for me, I mean, apart from the cinematography, the production design is incredible. It is amazing work on this film. They, they've they done a very, a very sound job, haven't they? Just dirtying the fuck out of everything. Yes, the um, costuming, the sets. And the best thing about that is that it's an interesting concept to present a film as one continuous shot. Whether or not it was actually filmed in one shot, the way it's presented is as one shot. It is an interesting concept and what that really does is you never feel 
like this was shot on a set because it is so sweeping and huge and expansive. And you see these locations move from one to the next as the camera moves. And so, like, your mind boggles as to how it was filmed. You try a picture the area it was filmed on and you're like, well, fuck, this is kilometers upon kilometers. And I'm sure it wasn't. That's movie magic. But it's such a smart thing to do because it feels expansive. Yeah, I was watching the film. I couldn't help but think. So so you and I spend a good chunk of our day at an edit suite. Yeah. Now, I think that I would have liked the film more or or at least just been immersed in the film more if editing wasn't a big part of my day because I, I couldn't, this is not, um, this isn't a criticism of the film. This is just my experience with it is that I couldn't remove myself from, ah, yep, there's an edit. Right. And so the, the kind of con- the conceit of the film actually has the reverse effect on me where I'm paying attention to it rather than just completely losing myself in it, which I'm sure works beautifully for a lot of right. people. And look, it's awfully like I said. This is not a criticism. It is awfully well done. I just couldn't help but be looking at that and probably not be as invested in the film as maybe I otherwise would have been. Yeah, yeah. I tried really hard to lock myself out from that. I found the exact same thing for the first ten, fifteen minutes, and there were bits where, to me, I was like, "And this is going to sound ridiculous." There were two edits early on where I was like, "Well, that's that's jarring. That's that's obviously an edit." And I had to remind myself, no, like that's to me, who, as you say, looks at this stuff all day to the general moviegoer. I, I, and I needed to really try to get myself in that mindset. And from then on, I had a much better time because the first kind of 15 minutes of the film, I was really not having a good time picking it apart. And even little things like, you know, it, it is a novel concept. And as I said, I think it works really well for things like the the landscape and, and, you know, the production design. But there are the problem with making a choice like this to, to present the movie in one continuous shot is that you're committed to that choice whether or not it works for the scene at hand or not. And early on, there is the scene when they're given their directions in, in the little tent. Ah, uh, yes, with Colin Firth. Yes. And- that scene really stood out to me as, okay, this scene has no purpose to be done in one take other than, well, it has to be because the whole movie is. Yep. And there's a really smooth, amazing moment where the camera goes from this over-the-shoulder shot over a table, which if you're thinking about, okay, how did the camera get into the room, then yes. what kind of rig is it on? And again, this is getting back to the things that I'm prob- that I'm not meant to be thinking of, but I'm like, okay, what kind of rig is the camera on to have just done this move so that we don't have to do this whole scene as an over-the-shoulder of our main characters? Yes. Um, because, yeah, that scene kind of is begging for a cut yes. at some point. It's, it's awkward. They want a cutaway. And so what they do to work around that, like you say, the camera moves. But more than that, what happens really awkwardly is the actors move. For apparently no reason, he says- come to this table over here. And <laughs> yep. three three times in that scene, they move to a different table for no reason other than we can get cutaways of different characters. And to me, it, it was a really awkward, awkward scene. And luckily, it's one of the only- it's one of the only kind of straight stand dialogue scenes in the film. So, the rest of the film that is quite a lot of movement- it works really well. But the problem is when you can, when you commit to a choice like that, you take the good with the bad. And that scene to me 
and the shame was that it was quite early on. So straight away I was like, oh, okay, I'm not really digging this. And I really had to lock that shit out of my head and just mm. try and enjoy it. Once they then kind of get into the mission of the film, that is finding Tom and Lannister's brother and his crew and telling him, don't go on this attack because you'll all be killed. They do a really intelligent thing where because any time, basically any time there is a cut in the film, it's when the camera moves past something in the foreground. That's yes. just that's just how you do it. So they litter so many of the shots mm-hmm. with objects in the foreground so that it's not like every time something passes in front of the camera, that's a cut. It's just a part of the visual language of the film. Yep. Which is a choice that just makes so much sense. It makes sense from both the technical standpoint, as you say, to hide your edits, but also creatively, it's all back to that set design. It's just they litter the foreground with things that, because obviously we're not getting cutaways. We're not, you know, when they walk past a pile of dead bodies, the camera is not going to, you know, divert focus from the characters to the dead body. But if that moves in the foreground in front of them, you kind of, you get that sense of place and everything without needing to cut the camera away. Yeah, exactly. There's things like the the craggy fence posts or yeah. whatever it might be, stuff that's just been blown apart, not in its original state. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, it, it does, it A, means that not every time you see something like that, it's a cut. And B, it, it does help place these characters in this hellscape. Early on, right from the get-go, that choice is very prominent. As I said, in those opening scenes where you're watching it going, well, it's 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 unusual, you know, it's not necessary in those scenes. But that in itself puts you on edge. As soon as the film starts and it's just them under the tree and the camera starts tracking back and we follow them, your eyes and your brain are already expecting a cut at some point because that's what we know from cinema. And so because you never get that, it's almost like you never get relief. So your body is tense from the start of the film and that leads through to the very end. And that, I think, is, for me, the absolute best part of the film is the way that- I said last week that I don't really like war movies and that's because I I don't- I'm not a war kind of guy. I'm not a violence guy. I'm not- to me, I, I like the human story. I found it amazing how much I loved this movie and how much I was able to connect with the characters even though there's not a lot of human story going on. And I think that's because, like, the camera becomes a character and in doing that, we become a character. We're there with them on this journey and it's a really, really good decision, apart from just looking hot shit. (laughs) Yeah, I was surprised because, like, you know, there's chunks of the film where there's no dialogue. It's, It's just action. A lot of the times, George McKay's character doesn't have anyone to talk to. So, I was actually really surprised when at the end, like at the very end of the film, when he gets out the photo from the little tin box, I was surprised at how much I cared and how affecting that moment was Mm -hmm. because it's not a, I mean, it's not like it's been a film about character development. It's been a film about character survival. Mm -hmm. But then I, I kind of had to just doff my hat to the film by the end there when- I found that actually a reasonably powerful moment, despite the fact that I hadn't felt up to that point that invested in in George McKay's character rather than you're who I'm following. That's the thing. This film somehow, in the way that it's presented, it 
it somehow covers up blemishes that I would have with other films. Like, it's very hard not to, at certain times in this film, compare it to, say, watching a video game. The first half hour in particular, when they first go on their mission, which is surprising. You would think it would be the back half when George McKay doesn't have anyone else to play off. But I found it particularly striking the first part when they're going through the German camp and he's got Tommen with him. And, and even though they are conversing a little bit, it feels very much like you're watching a video game. It's like a stealth mission where all that's happening on screen is they're walking slowly and the dialogue is reduced to things like, there's a gap in the wire. That could be a way through. Like that's literally a line, which is the kind of thing that you'd hear a non-player character say directing you in a game. And like we had this critique mere weeks ago with Rise of Skywalker that it it kind of follows video game plotting and that's a bad thing. But in this movie, it's it's so immersive and that seems to be a distinct choice that I can't critique it for that. I actually think that's a good thing that it feels that way, that you're almost there with them. Mm. That scene down in the, the German tunnels does have one of my least favourite moments of the film. Like to, I thought to almost a comical extent when the rat trips the tripwire. Oh, really? And I, it, I and actually it blows them up. And like, I, I really liked that moment, but then Tommen finds- George McKay's character, whose name completely escapes me, he's just going to be George, <laughs> un- like buried under this pile of rubble like his parents at the end of Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's just like so perfectly placed over him. It's like there's no way that's how it happened. There's just no way. Yeah, that he somehow is completely free of rubble and it all fell in this one kind of two square metre radius. There's, there's one mound of rubble. George is just <laughs> slotted perfectly into it. Not to mention that much rock hitting you with that force. I'm sorry if that's how it happened. George is dead. Oh, mate, he had dust in his eyes. <laughs> you can't go on. <laughs> then right after that comes actually maybe my favourite bit of design in the entire film when they come out the other side of the tunnels and they're around the artillery that the Germans have already destroyed so that it can't be used against them. Yeah. And the giant shells are everywhere. And it's almost like we've had an Alice in Wonderland moment and they've shrunk. Yeah. And like the scale of everything and the size of the conflict is is just shown by their size compared to these just enormous shells. I thought it was a really cool shot. Yeah, no, I agree. And that follows through the rest of the film as we as we see this kind of path of destruction. Things like you say, they destroyed their own weapons. They cut down the trees so they won't give fruit. Just a dick move. Yeah. And then the final kind of, it, it's hard. You almost want to say action scenes, but really this movie is like a string of sequences, really. Uh, when he's running through the city and it's nighttime at that point in the flames and everything, like you say, it all looks so big and destructive. It's yeah. really, really gorgeous design. So between between the tunnels and the, the town comes quite possibly my favourite shot of the film where they've, they've gone down into kind of one giant hole. I don't know if it's a crater. It's probably a crater from artillery, maybe, that's filled with water. Yeah. And the camera follows them down and goes down to water level and tracks across the water as they make their way across mm. the other side. It is just a- And that was one moment where I was thinking about how did Roger Deakins do this shot, but I didn't care that I was thinking about it because I was just like, holy mother of God, the difference between you- 
and most cinematographers is the difference between most cinematographers and me. You are that far ahead of the fucking pack. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Well, and it's true. Like, it is hard for people like you and I to block those kind of thoughts out. But, you know, that's part of why we love film and what we love about film is studying the way things are done. So... I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that our our heads are taken to that place where rather than just enjoying the film, we're thinking, wow, that's that's impressive. <laughs> I mean, the only bad thing about it is is like using Deacons' own words against him because he's a big one on, I'm not here to make the film look good. I'm here to serve the story. So if I'm sitting there going, I can't get my head around how good you are at your job, Roger, even though I'm going, you're the best, by his own measurement- He's failed me, which is <laughs> no, which is ridiculous. As I said, I think for me, it really, really does serve the film because I think the, the truth is there's not a lot of story here. There really isn't. It's it's get from A to B is the story. And so, the way you tell that story, as I said, the camera really does become a character. I think this is the only way to shoot this film and tell this story, I think. So, I was th- that was a thought I had going into this. I was like, does this film need to be shot with this to put it? rudely gimmick. Um I I look I can't say that I think that it that it demands to be shot this way, but I'm really I, I'm still like I'm really glad that they did it because now I I have a movie of this type shot this way. I've got plenty of movies shot the usual way. I absolutely think it needed to be shot this way. For me, without that stylistic decision, this would be maybe uh five or six for me. Um, I don't know how emotionally invested I would have been with the characters if it weren't for the fact that you literally live and breathe with them for this tight period. So few films are done in this kind of real-time style. And, yeah, oftentimes it's not necessary and doesn't work. But for this, it's I, I think it's exactly, as I said, for me, the only way to tell this story effectively. Yeah, look, I'm totally here for the long take, so I'm- I, I movie nerd out over them as much as anyone. But, you know, the scenes like the one with Colin Firth's character, yeah. the ones where, for instance, he's in the truck with the other people where, you know, the camera's gone in and is just locked into being in this one spot because there's nothing else it can do when really, again, the scene is, I think, crying out for a reverse shot. By all means, have those shots that last for minutes and they are incredible. They're incredible. But does every single second need to be locked into this for me? No. I, I think that's the problem is that it's it's a decision you make. Like, if, if you decide this is what you're doing, then, yeah, I think you are locked into that choice. I don't think you really can have – like, sure, there are long takes in films. But can you imagine if this film was, say, five or six long takes broken up by sequences of of regular – LJ cuts like I feel like that would be really strange. Yeah, I, look, I can see it, and it would still be insanely impressive. It would be definitely. Um, yeah, but like I said, it's it's great to get something new. Like this is a what would ordinarily be a, a really fairly bog standard dad movie, but yeah, because it's done by Mendes and Deacons, and they decided to do this thing, we get something which don't look for every scene and for every second. I don't think it works. But yeah. it's still really cool to watch. So we got up to talking about that scene in the in the town with the burning church in the middle, which I'd heard an, an interview with Deacons, which is a fairly rare thing, really, um, a few weeks ago where they, they talked about this scene. And just hearing him talk about it, I was already pretty psyched 
to just what okay, like what's what's this gonna look like? This is gonna be some fucking mad deacon shit. Um Holy Mother of God. This scene is is spectacular. Deacons just completely leans into his disregard of a fill light. He's like, a lot of this screen's gonna be black and it's gonna look amazing. It's just like embraces the shadows and it looks phenomenal. The way that the flare or you know the mm. the, the light source yep. that is meant to be the flare moves across that giant set. You think about and, and like here's another here, this is another moment where like I'm thinking about the mechanics of filming it, but actually just enjoying it because it's so stonkingly good. If you think about the lighting rig that would be required to make that happen, it's it's just some phenomenal shit, which mm-hmm. the amount of it's not just talent you need to do it, the the experience and the experience of running a crew yep. that you need to communicate properly that this is what we're gonna do, this is how it's gotta work. Like like Deacons is winning his second Oscar this year. It's just it's happening. And it's it's not just because the film looks cool and because of the one-shot nature of it. It's a level of confidence in just his knowledge of what the final product will be, I think. Yeah, yeah. With what he's doing with the lighting is genuinely spectacular. Well, I think it's not just him. I, like, you, you really can't talk about this film without giving props to Mendes. You know that for the back half of this year, definitely, I've been a- Massive supporter of my boy Bong and Parasite as best film of the year. I still definitely think Parasite is the best film of the year. But Mendes really should get best director for this because, as you see, it's not just the way that the cinematography and and the lighting go hand in hand. Obviously, that's basically one department anyway. But the oversight of how everything blends together, like the, the way that the cinematography blends with the visual effects, you like... That's incredible achievement on its own. Like, Mm. you know, as you were talking about the production design being a huge part of both the cinematography and the editing, the way that all of these arms go hand in hand together is so well executed. Yeah, of course, the blocking has to be insanely precise for the shooting of the film to work the way it does. Can we also talk about the score by Thomas Newman? Yeah, let's. Loved it. I was a massive fan of this score. You as well? Yeah, I thought it was at its best best when it was less musicy and more soundscapey. I mean, yeah, because it almost runs through the entire film. It, which leads me to I would actually be curious to see a version of this film with absolutely zero dialogue. I I think that it I think it would have been too experimental for them to do it, but I would have actually loved to have seen this film with just score and movement. Because there's so little dialogue anyway, and the scenes that are dialogue heavy, as we've said, kind of don't flow very well. And the movie does a great job of visually telling the story. Like, the music itself, I think, is good, but when it's just more that kind of humming- Yeah, you know, drone. You know, Zimmer's done it a bunch with Nolan, that kind of yeah, mildly reverby sort of just atmospheric noise coming at you. I think yes. it's really effective. It is easy in a lot of ways to compare this film to Dunkirk, and I think the score is definitely an example of that because, as you say, that kind of droning hum was a a huge part of the Dunkirk soundtrack. Um, But, yeah, I think it works so well here. Mm. I like the- Like we we mentioned before, the 
the scene where Tommen Lannister dies, there's a bunch of the violence in the film where I love how inexact they've made it. Like these are probably draftees, not like career soldiers. Yeah. And that moment in the town where where George McKay's character sees the guy at the burning church. Oh. And like we the audience and probably him too. We don't we don't know straight off is that a bad guy or not? Yes. And it's yeah. not till they're like shockingly close to each other that the violence breaks out. That's the thing. I actually lost track of when did he lose his gun because I felt like he had his gun in that scene, but he never used it. And part of that, like you say, is probably like, yeah, it's, it's, he's almost like a trainee. He's like, it's just, it's act rather than think. He doesn't think to grab his gun. He's just like, well, shit, this guy is right here. I'm going to strangle him. Yeah. So, he did still have his gun at that point because he still had it when he then had the the shush shush. That's what I, that's what I thought. He lost it when he jumped mm. in the river, did he? Yes, that would have been it. Yeah. Which was one of the few shots I really didn't like, the the visual effect shot of him falling down that first waterfall. I was like, oh, yuck. <laughs> um, but he definitely, yeah, he had it when he went down into the basement and was having a scene with Lady with random baby. Yeah. Who was like, like I mean, I didn't, like, I didn't dislike the scene. Um, but but <laughs> the bit that was like, what? Your random battle baby needs milk, you say? <laughs> I just happened to have filled my canteen with milk not an hour before. I know, again, it's a little bit like a side quest in a video game. Where it's- I was like, turn it up, George. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I feel like we also need to address the fact that apparently Germans are about as good a shot as stormtroopers. Because <laughs> there's a lot of just bullets flying right next to this guy and never actually hitting anything. <laughs> It is shocking the amount of bullets that ping off stone 20 centimetres from his head. Like, you couldn't do it if you tried. Yeah, I know. You almost couldn't aim to not hit that person. (laughs) Old mate up in the tower, like, if Obi-Wan Kenobi's taught me anything, you want the high ground. (laughs) Like, he definitely wins that shootout. (laughs) So, how did you feel about- So, I thought that- I thought Tom and Lannister probably hasn't come on- that far since being a child actor. Still didn't particularly like him, if I'm honest. I thought George McKay was really good. Yeah. Um, I think I think in the not-too-distant future, George McKay is going to be a person that everybody knows. Um, like, I got a trailer for another film of his when I went to the movies. Um, in fact, I got two. I got back-to-back George McKay trailers because I got the true history of the Kelly gang into- um, what's it called? Like a guide to second date sex or something? Wow. I went George McKay trailer, George McKay trailer, George McKay film. <laughs> That's um, crazy. Which I'm all for because like I, I think he's really like I thought he was excellent going back a couple of years in Captain Fantastic. So I'm totally here for the breakout time of George McKay. Um how did you feel about the stunt casting? Yeah, I film? think it's a I think it's a weird choice. In a film where Okay, Tom and, you know, obviously people, I mean, kind of know him from Game of Thrones, but it's not like he was a lead in that show. And George McKay, as you say, you knew him, but I think from a lot of people I've heard, he's basically an unknown. It sounds like he might have more coming up, but I think it's a weird choice when you kind of deliberately cast your leads that way to then have people like Colin Firth and Benedict Cumberbatch pop up is a really weird decision and it didn't work for me at all because it does distract you because everything has been so 
real. As I say, you don't even feel like you're on a set because the way the camera moves, you, your brain mm. goes, well, it's impossible for this to be on a set. This is clearly a real, very expansive landscape. So to then have those people pop up unnecessarily, re- like Colin Firth basically has an, a nothing job. He's he's All he does is say, here's your mission. <laughs> Yeah, why are you bothering to pay these people? Oh, when, that's like, the thing. The whole point of the movie is to, and the way they shoot it is to be this immersive experience. Yeah. It's mystifying to me why then you put in things that make it, that remind you that you're watching a movie yeah. because there's a movie star. Yeah, I agree completely. So they didn't work for me. Pro- at like, all. I mean, there's like half the cast of Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy is here. Um, <laughs> like, it's a wonder Gary Oldman didn't just pop up as Churchill. Oh, that would have been great. Although I suppose, oh, what? Uh, yeah, I suppose Churchill was done in 1917 with um, sending Australians to their deaths in Turkey, so he could have bobbed up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then, but I've got to say, the one that really worked for me is the kind of hilarious fact that Rob Stark is Tommen's brother. Richard Madden really worked for me at the end. Yeah, he really did. Well, he was almost unrecognisable. Even I think I don't think that you looked at him and went, "Holy crap." That's Richard Mann. I think he looked. Oh, he looked very. I, I see those eyes, and I know. <laughs> I know where I am. <laughs> You're lost. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, that really did work for me as well. I thought he was great, and he arguably has to show the most emotion in the film, apart he from does, and in such an English way. Yes, like he's, yes. he's he wants to completely lose his shit, but he's clinging to this stiff upper lip. Um, that, I thought he. I thought his scene was excellent. I agree. I think for me, one of the best scenes of the film. I. I, I really like Tommen too. I know you said that you don't think he's Man. grown a lot from his childhood. I thought, like his death scene in particular, I thought was wonderful. Yeah, actually, I'll agree with you on that. He was outstanding in that death. Also, scene. Also, fuck was- that guy. They just saved you from a plane, you asshat. Yeah, I know, right? Well, that what was a bad prick. choice. I mean, you don't you don't save the enemy, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean. I don't like being near fire, so I probably wouldn't even save you. <laughs> like, you had alone someone I didn't like. A lot of humanity on display from Billy right here. <laughs> all right. So, all in all, it sounds like we were definitely on the on the positive end of this. What are you scoring it? I'm a 7 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Um, I very much enjoyed it, but I, I think it's fair to say I was more impressed by it than I thought it was, like, great. Yep. Very similar basis. I'm an eight. I was very, very nearly a nine when I very when I first walked out of the cinema, which is funny because for the first half hour I was like, "Well, this is like a five or a six. But I think that it was a wonderful choice to tell the story that way. And yeah, I'm an eight. Alrighty, what are we getting to next week, buddy? Next week, um, we'll be ditching all these dirty men and going with some freshly showered women. That's right. We'll be getting to Bombshell, which I'm keen to see. I've heard extremely mixed things about this film. Looking forward to that. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that at wewatchedathing.com or wewatchedathing at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all under the handle at wewatchedathing. If you want to help support the show and make us watch something or get early access to episodes, and in fact, February, mate, is basically all patreon requests which i'm really excited about you can do that at patreon.com forward slash we watch the thing and we'll catch you next week go watch a movie